later on in the day, actually the next people that we will use as objects are people we love a lot and probably in the category of husbands, wives, life partners, all of the people that we love a lot, but it's not totally uncomplicated. Every once in a while there's something. The instructions that the Buddha gave for the benefactor are to pick someone as your benefactor with those who I guess throughout one's practice one always remembers as one's benefactor for those times when one needs immediate recourse to the benefactor and if you have someone who most of the time but not all the time is in that place might not be in that place but for today Michelle that's wonderful um, one of the other traditional instructions of the uh, in, in, in Theravada scripture is not to pick anyone not currently alive. Actually, I'm, uh, I'm quite content. It's been my experience that um, if I think about my grandmother, who hasn't been alive for a long time, but was a very important spiritual teacher for me and towards whom I'm very grateful and who I expect exists on some realm, I'm happy to send metta wherever in that realm. Sometimes, in, you know, the debates in the scripture about it's not as lively a practice, it works for me. So you can deal with that however you like. Uh, the other instruction in, in traditional practice is not to pick anyone of a sex towards whom erotic strivings might arise. <laughs> Which means different things, but, well, it means the same thing, but in different situations might mean different things. Because as you feel wonderful loving feelings towards people, and these loving feelings really fill the body, possibility is if they are in connection with someone towards whom erotic strivings might arise, that erotic strivings might arise and that they might then captivate the mind with erotic thoughts and draw the attention away from the wishing of well. If I were on a debate team, I could do that both ways. Uh, I actually tried it in practice once. I thought, nah, it's probably not true. So I'll just try it out. I'll think about so-and-so who, towards whom erotic strivings might arise, and I'll see if they actually do, if I'm just wishing them well and well-being and health and ease and all that. And lo and behold, they did. So I thought, okay. <laughs> I thought, okay, it's true about this practice, but... <laughs> On the other hand, that's not necessarily undelightful, a hit of erotic strivings. If you get captivated in thoughts about it, then it's a problem. If they wake you up and you say, hey, it's true, look at that, they figured that out 2,500 years ago. Now I'll pick somebody else. That's okay. You might try it. I mean, I mean if you want to make it an interesting practice day, I mean, don't start with the erotic strivings. Start... <laughs> Start with a person and see if that happens. Check it out. The Buddha said, don't believe anything that anybody tells you. Just try it out. See if it's true. It's, that's really, it's, it's an interesting way to practice. What other benefactor questions do you have? What? 
What's your name? Teresa. Teresa. They had two very good, one very good observation, very good question. On your observation about your children, that's fine, or your child. I frequently think about my grandchildren as my benefactors. And in a sense, they benefact me by just being in my world because they bring me such delight. They haven't done anything for me other than bring me delight and happiness, but that's a lot. And also, I have absolutely uncomplicated feelings of well-wishing towards them. So all of those are possibilities. And that it's not described in the scripture because the Buddha wasn't mainly talking to lay people. So, um, so that's fine. The second part about staying awake First of all, as soon as we close our eyes, uh, one of the tendencies in doing any type of meditative practice, especially one that's repetitive, is that the mind starts to fall asleep, that, that dullness or sleepiness just <clears throat> fills the mind from time to time. It's no problem. When you discover you've been asleep, you start again. So it, it actually wakes up the mind, just the determination to start again. The other thing about... Um, working with sleepiness in metta practice is it has something to do with why I gave the instruction about not just saying the words but feeling them in the body because then really it requires a certain amount of alertness in the mind and body if each time you say a phrase you somewhat nuance the sense of the phrase in your body it keeps the mind and the body awake I actually feel as if each of those phrases arises in the mind it may come up different for you. Do you know what a teleprompter is? Mm -hmm. I imagine that that phrase arises kind of out of the teleprompter in the void, and it's suddenly there. And there's that phrase, and I relate to it in a certain way, and then it disappears, and the next phrase comes up on the teleprompter. I was thinking of a tachistoscope, but they come too fast, more like a teleprompter, and comes and goes and comes and goes, kind of the cosmic tele teleprompter. Mm -hmm. Here it is, phrase, may I have physical happiness. Okay, that's how it feels. And it's gone. Let it go. Actually, metta practice is quite a complex practice. It looks very simple, but it's very complicated. In a certain way, we are in each moment practicing letting go. Here comes a phrase. It's a nice phrase. It's interesting. Feel in the body. That's very pleasant. Hmm, I could hang out here for a while in physical happiness. Let it go. Here comes the next one. New relate. Let it go. Here comes the next one. New relate. Let it go. Bringing that clarity of aim to each phrase is what really keeps the mind awake. It's the natural way of working. The same hindrances that come up in vipassana practice come up in metta practice. Sleepiness arises. But bringing the same clarity of uh, seeing to each phrase and each nuance of it is what keeps the mind awake. Maybe one more question, yeah. Hi, my, my name is Bert, and I wanted some clarification about something you alluded to. I did a retreat about a year ago. It was introduced to meta practice, and sort of told it's better to 
stay with one person for a while. And I just tried today for the first time to use a different benefactor of my father. It was, it was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you could clarify how long you should stay with one person. Is it better to stay with one person or group of people for a while and cultivate that feeling? Or how does that work in practice, long-term practice? So the question is, when do you shift from the benefactor to yourself or from one benefactor to another benefactor or from one benefactor to another person? I think the answer to that, again, is one does this practice in order to maximally cultivate that kind of spaciousness of well-wishing that is our natural state. So that if, um, if we're staying with one person, we start to get sleepy or bored or dull, and another person comes to mind, that's fine if it wakes up the mind and keeps the mind engaged and keeps the mind happily practicing, that's great. If we're jumping around all the time, lining up people on the next line, and the mind is so busy making a lineup of people towards whom one will after this one get to and do, <laughs> then we're not really here for this one. Yet some people notice that, that as they start wishing well, kind of starts to be a queue lining up. Do you notice that? And you get a, a, a lineup of people that as you finish with this one, you have a feeling that there are more people crowding in. <laughs> I think that that's a natural kind of inclination of the heart, that we keep a list in there of folks that we wish well towards. So I don't think it's a, somehow a sign of naughty mind or bad practice or anything like that. But the practice is to see when we are here with this object of attention to be fully here. Maybe one one recitation of four phrases and then someone else is here. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if the object of your phrases the whole day never moves off you the whole day or covers 2,000 people. It doesn't matter. We are not really doing this to cover the world or to make sure that everything happens. We're doing it to recover the natural state of the heart, which is to wish well as a reflection of internal happiness, which is a reflection of understanding and wisdom and freedom. That's really what metta practice is about. And so all of those questions about, should I go here or there, or this phrase or that phrase, or this sex or that sex, or here or later, is all in the service of what works to do that for you. So, okay, one more question and then we'll walk. Barbara. <laughs> that was, Barbara, the phrase that I said, these are peculiar phrases. I don't know who translated these originally from the Pali, and I don't know what how do you say well-being in Pali or ease of well-being and what exactly it means. When it's translated in the texts that discuss it, it means something like, may I live in the world in a way that um, works out well. And often it's even discussed in terms of, may I make a living or may, my, you know, may, may the kinds of uh, uh, logistics of living in the world work out for me. 
that's way too complicated for me to think about in terms of having an object of that phrase. So I just say that phrase and I think about what it would mean to live a life of ease. And I feel that. Not what it would mean um, precisely in terms of that I would suddenly win the sweepstakes or that something would happen. That, but just how the mind and body would be when it's at ease. I say ease of well-being only because my method teacher taught it to me that way. Some people say, may I live in ease or may I have a sense of well-being. If the phrase rattles the mind, change it and then use the new phrase. I really only use mine because that's what my teacher taught me. Yeah, no, no, no. Changing is okay. May I have a sense of well-being? Fine. It's really, change it if it doesn't sit well with you. I would recommend, though, that if you change it, you know, change it over the course of the day or the next few days, but then get yourself four phrases that are yours and just keep them. Because then you don't have to think about what's my phrase. It just becomes, uh, you know how it is when you hum a tune a lot and then you say, I can't stop humming that tune. What you really want to do is not to be able to stop humming this tune. And you want it to hum all the time. And it does. So that's what you want to cultivate. So one more. <laughs> Well, I, I noticed how tenacious the inner critic is for me, you know, uh -huh. starting a new practice. When I first started Vipassana, I wondered, am I doing the breathing correctly? Am I doing this right? And I found myself, in the beginning, feeling, am I doing this right? Am I feeling each of these four phrases differently? Mm -hmm. with each one differently in my body. And I got very caught up in that for mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. know, is this the right way to feel? Yeah, right. Physical happiness is right. a way to feel easy. Yeah. You know, and that really took over until I got into the benefactor. Uh-huh. And that seemed to, um, uh -huh. to uh, ease that burden a bit. Uh-huh. And I found it interesting just that any practice is going to bring up my stuff. Uh-huh. You know, that I'm that right, there, right there ready to go nuts. Right, right. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Susan, for sharing that, because I'm sure I, I, my guess is that a lot of people thought that. Am I feeling it right? We are, we are just all of us so conditioned to the doing it right syndrome that even like wishing somebody well, did I wish right? I mean, how can I, how could you wish right in a wrong way? I mean, <laughs> especially to yourself. I give myself and I'm criticizing. That's exactly right, which gives us some clue about why even though this is the most natural state in the world, we are out of touch with it. I am happy to say that the sun is shining so that we can do the next part of our practice together outdoors. Here is the walking practice for metta practice. You know, when we do vipassana practice, we have a certain kind of practice when we're sitting and another certain kind of practice while we're walking. Well, here is the really exciting news. Metta practice is metta practice. And it does not matter in what position you are or what activity you're doing. Just as we sat here and made those recitations, 
Walking practice is to take a walk, make the same recitations. That's all. You don't even have to walk slow. You can walk, you can walk at any rate of speed. Could run if you wanted to. But you should walk in a way that's enjoyable for you. Walk in a way that makes you happy. Actually, delight is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing for vipassana practice also, and it's a wonderful thing for metta practice. It's a beautiful day. It's sunny. It's cool. It's lovely outside. Go for a walk. Breathe. Look around. Feel happy. Smile. And make all those recitations. The only instruction is keep making the recitations. Don't just go for a walk. Your little metta song, which we, what you're doing today is you are practicing humming that tune so that it becomes a part of your machinery. And that if you wake up in the middle of the night, you hum a few phrases of your tune. If you wake up in the morning, you do it. And today, to have a whole day of practice, as opposed to just read the instructions and do it now and then, is to really implant that into your system. So have a walk, have uh, do metta for yourself, and metta for your benefactor in whatever measure you want. You don't have to do one and one. You can just do yourself. If you're just doing your benefactor and it's really making you happy, every once in a while remember to do yourself. Some people have a hard time doing themselves and an easy time with a benefactor. Other people, believe it or not, are totally happy doing themselves. And then every once in a while they get a hit of, oh dear, I forgot my benefactor. Probably I'm selfish. I'm doing this wrong. I've made 85 recitations for myself and none for my benefactor. Now it'll probably totally be a bad omen on me, and I'll have to do a lot on the benefactor. The mind is ready to leap on everything and make a story out of it. Do what comes up for you, but try them both. Today is a day of experimenting. Does anybody have a logistical question? Yeah. Um, it's great that we can really take a walk, and that being the case, could you either really ring, ring the gong loudly or give us some idea of how many minutes it will be? Yeah. How about, would you like a 35-minute walk? All right. How about a 35-minute walk, and I'll ring the gong in 35 minutes, and so 40 minutes from now we'll be sitting back here again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We are spending the day in silence and not talking because we're busy talking to ourselves. So we can't talk to anybody else. I mean, this is really our space to memorize our tune. So really keep your inner space. It's a great pleasure to have this inner space. As a matter of fact, we'll come back at, we'll be all sitting at 12.20. We'll eat lunch at 1 o'clock. And you can probably project what the instruction, the eating instructions for metta practice are. And it's not that, yeah. I'm not familiar with this place. Are there directions we should walk? I would more or less keep on the road back and forth, in, in front or in back. Or uh, there's a road that goes up this way, but you'll see where the road ends around the corner. Just stay where you can 
see us or hear us, and I will ring the gong in a loud way at uh, quarter past twelve. So have a very meta walk. As we continue to sit together and we continue to work with the practice, making the metta resolves for oneself and for one's benefactor, sitting here just as we did while we were walking. And after a little bit, I'll give you some instructions for including other objects of the metta resolves as well. But for a while, we'll just continue with ourselves and for the benefactor. And just as you continue to sit, I like to say um, just a word of encouragement about awareness that the hindrances come up in metta practice just as they do in vipassana practice. By the way, the instructions for metta practice are clearly practice all the time while sitting, while walking, will make the resolves while eating. The only time that you can't really be making the resolves in the mind is while listening. It's hard to be remembering the words and listening to words at the same time. But actually you can be practicing metta just in the way that you are, practicing being at ease bringing a, just enough awareness of ease and happiness <coughs> and contentment to the posture and to the mind as you listen. So I only want to remind you that the same squiggly mind energies that we call the hindrances that come up in vipassana practice come up in metta practice as well. You know, here we are doing what's essentially Santa Claus practice, just going around giving out gifts of the heart and just wishing everybody well. And There's often the sense that we ought to immediately and completely and totally and without a break be happy about doing it. And lo and behold, all those same funny mind energies that obscure the clarity of vision and practice come up. So just to remind you that the mind suddenly gets really involved in how splendid this practice is and how much you like it and how wonderful it is to do it and starts making stories about I'm going to do this practice all the time and from now on I'll only do metta and forget about vipassana and (laughs) start to make all the big stories in the mind based on a little bit of clinging. It's just clinging. And if the mind becomes irritable, I can't do it, everybody else is doing it, this is annoying practice, and what's more, its instructions aren't so clear, and it was the wrong day to be here, and should have been somewhere else. Those are just, it's just just a squiggly mind energy of aversion using the practice as the story object. 
You can recognize this as a moment of aversion in the mind and then just let it go. And if you get sleepy or bored and you start to believe it, they say, this is very boring, this practice. I wonder when I'm going to have another object and just myself and the benefactor. It's too boring. It's too plain. It's just the mind running out of energy. It's nothing. You say to yourself, this is torpor in the mind. Then go back and bring more clarity to yourself and the benefactor. The presence or absence of any of the hindrances are just really signposts for how to develop the practice. Discover that the mind is bored. It means that you could really bring more attention to the nuance of feeling. Perhaps you could sing your resolves to yourself instead of just saying them. I sing mine. A certain tune that really suits me, so I do it over and over and over again on my tune, literally on a tune. If you find that you get restless, mind gets tired of these two, or it gets irritable, or starts to fret, and say to yourself, this is just restlessness. It's just restlessness. It's a little bit too much energy in the mind, maybe from concentrating. Maybe it's a good sign. Maybe that means my concentration is really deepening. Not to take it too seriously. And particularly the hindrance of doubt. You have the thought, well, this surely couldn't be as valuable as a practice as insight. Seems like a pretty simple-minded practice. This isn't really seeing clearly the nature of all experience. It's just saying phrases. Maybe other people will be able to do it, but not me. Surely not going to be able to develop any metta towards somebody who's really wronged me, okay, myself or a benefactor, but not my real heavies. That's just a moment of doubt. Don't pay it too much attention. So it's just to tell you about them so you can anticipate them. It's really very good practice to be able to recognize the hindrances when they arrive. Someone that I teach with recently used a Halloween metaphor for that. So it's just mind states dressed up in Halloween costumes. And they come and they say, trick or treat. (laughs) And you don't really think that the boy next door in that sheet is a ghost. Otherwise, you'd be much more frightened. So you don't really have to take the hindrances very seriously. They're just mind energies dressed up in stories. So we'll sit for a while with wishing good wishes to ourselves and to our benefactors. As we continue to practice and we continue to work with the intention 
in the mind and body, helped along by the phrase. If you find that the words change from time to time, and different set of phrases or a different order of the words emerges in the mind, that's really a, a normal and usual thing of happening. The words are really just a reminder of the heart space that we're cultivating. Really, a heart space is a good way to think about it. It's really the space for the natural heart to manifest. Nothing really needs to be added. It's what's left when all the complications of mind fall away and confusions. You may find as you recite those phrases that sometimes the pronouns fall away so that you might be saying things like free of danger, mental happiness, physical happiness, and ease of well-being. And just having the recipient of those phrases be clear to you in the mind. And just that intention of the heart manifests as a phrase. Sometimes when the mind's quieter, it doesn't require the whole sentence. So really be easy about that. Make the practice as felicitous as you can. Don't complicate it. As we continue for the next part of practice, and you continue to sit, you can allow it to come to mind as well a person or persons. The next category after that of a benefactor to be a person that you love a lot is more or less in a position of closeness in your life, but regularness. I think of benefactors as those towards whom we have nothing but unalloyed positive feelings. Often it's hard to find even one person like that in a life, let alone many. And the next category of people that we love a lot, I hope we have a few, at least, and maybe even more than a few. So people that we love a lot, but also regular people, so we might sometimes have some tension between us with them, but mostly they're people that we love a lot. Category of good, close friend. Those towards whom we have nothing but unalloyed positive feelings. Often it's hard to find even one person like that in a life, let alone many. And the next category of people that we love a lot, I hope we have a few, at least, and maybe even more than a few. So people that we love a lot, but also regular people, so we might sometimes 
have some tension between us with them, but mostly they're people that we love a lot. Category of good, close friend. So have that category of person arise in the mind. Likely be more than one person. Start with one. If you find that there's a line forming, see if you can relate to the line skillfully. So that there's no sense of hurrying through these recitations for this person in order to get up to the next person. There's no place to get to. There's just a place of lovingness to dwell in. Actually, it's good to have several people in one's awareness because then there's just a sense of peaceful abiding and being here for the next set of phrases and the next set of phrases when they arrive. But being here for this set now, connecting as fully as one can with this set of phrases, with this intention of the heart, with this recipient of the good wishing in this moment. I'll be quiet as we practice that, but feel also free. The benefactor floats back into the mind to continue with the benefactor. And also from time to time to remember yourself. Fundamentally, it's all the same. So if you think of your whole body as being a meta-beacon, this radiating at well-wishing, then it's not so much an active thing that one is doing, the wishing well, or remembering to wish well, but really a reflection of a state of being. Really the ability to reflect metta is the manifestation of being in a place at least at that moment of contentment, of ease. Just one moment of it at a time, free of danger, mental happiness, physical happiness, ease of well-being.
so in just a few minutes we'll continue the metta practice through lunch Actually, it occurs to me it's easy in a Vipassana retreat when we have walking practice, we have to get up and do walking instructions. Have eating practice, we have to get out the raisins. This is so uncomplicated. We just keep on doing the metta recitation. It just occurs to me some people who have not done Vipassana practice, so that raisin reference is probably very peculiar. When we do vipassana practice, which is paying attention to sensations and mind states in all moments of experience, we do that while we eat as well, and we use the eating as the object of attention. And it's become traditional, although I don't know if they had raisins in India at the time of the Buddha, for us to use raisins as a practice for eating meditation. In metta practice, we eat and we make the metta intentions. doesn't mean that you don't taste what you're eating or that you don't enjoy what you're eating or that you don't delight in what you're eating, but it's actually using that delight and that pleasure, assuming that you've brought something that you're delighted and happy to be eating, to really uh, kind of fire up the, the metta machine. It's really to help you in the good wishing, especially if we're doing something pleasant like eating. It really fires up the resolve, just as I feel in this moment pleasant, so do all beings wish to feel pleasant. Just as I feel happy, so do all beings wish to be happy. So it's a way of really keeping up the, the practice. It's really, metta is really just the reflecting of the delighted heart or the heart that's at ease or the happy heart. It's not the denial practice. Sometimes people worry about that. What about all these other feelings that I have? It's absolutely in the acknowledgement that all things are part of our experience, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes, but that in each moment, the free mind gets to choose how it relates in that moment. It doesn't get to change its experience. It just gets to choose how it relates. So before we go and eat our metta lunch, did you have any questions about the walking practice or about this last period of sitting? Yeah. I have a question about So that the feelings of grief come up or a wave of sadness. I think um, in a certain way, it's a little bit similar to the question that came up this morning as to what to do when suddenly an awareness of discomfort in the body comes up. That rather than reflect on the reasons for the sadness, perhaps it's that we haven't felt this more or that whatever it is, which would be... uh, there are a thousand stories that might explain why a wave of sadness comes up all of a sudden. And they'd be interesting to think about, but rather than to reflect on the etiology of that, but to really use that state and the awareness of it and the awareness of the discomfort of it and the pain of it and how much we really wish in every moment to have happiness, 
to really fire our resolve to relate to ourselves in the kindest way that we can and relate to others in the kindest way that we can. Really to use it just as we relate to pain in the body. A discomfortable mind state comes up. and We might think to ourselves, really, the next time when we say, may I have mental happiness? It's not to push it away because that's a, that's a kind of an aversive action, but to kind of open to it in the awareness of how unpleasant that is and how much we really do wish that we had mental happiness, really to feel in that moment the painfulness of it and to let go into it and to see if we can bring to meet it a moment of ease. Really to open it to it. I think at the end of the day, my hope will be that we'll come around to saying that there are certain fundamental ways in which this is not very much different or different at all from vipassana practice. It's a way of opening to our experience quite fully and to do it in the context of a compassionate response to it, which is really the same as vipassana practice. And this perhaps uses certain imagery like the imagery of a benefactor who would be happy if we were happy, as a way of allowing us to open compassionately to our experience. It's really a form of vipassana practice that's conditioned with imagery and phrases. Really, that's what it is. Is that... Yeah. The significance to me is that that's what I learned. <laughs> and that's what my metta guru taught me. So I, have a, I, I, I love to say her phrases because they make me happy. Cause I, it was a very wonderful thing for me to learn metta when I did. I'd done a lot of years of vipassana practice and uh, only a little bit of... Uh, uh, sort of brief metta at the end of retreats when we were just about to go home. And truly, I never really connected with the practice, and I had doubts about it. It didn't seem so profound to me, and I didn't really get it. And I worried a little bit about the fact that I didn't have the wonderful emotional response to it that a lot of the people around me seemed to be having. Um, it's actually, I'm not a very sentimental person. Which I, I tell you because, uh, first of all, because it's true. Uh, I don't think I'm not a heartfelt person or a compassionate person or a kind person. Uh, just on those sort of Jungian typologies, I'm more of a thinker than a feeler. And so I don't, I don't cry easily. So if I look around and I see everybody else crying and having a big emotional response, I start to worry about maybe I'm hard-hearted and uh, not real. Actually, I discovered that the metta practice, when I began to do it intensively, really put me in touch with how profoundly we really feel, quite apart from sentiment. Sentiment has stories that this person I have sentiment towards positive, or this person I have sentiment towards negative, even in a big way. These people I don't have any sentiment about because I don't know them. Actually, you discover that we can quite profoundly feel 
towards all beings in a really fundamental, compassionate sense of shared beinghood, which is um, just a very important kind of awareness for me. So that's why I say four phrases, because my metta teacher uh, is very important to me, and that's what she taught me. Uh, But some people I know do three. Uh, so if you do three, three is okay. Four also fits me even numbers on breaths when I'm doing it on breaths. And sometimes I am. Even numbers fit well on breaths. But some people do two also, and that fits well on breaths. So there isn't a rule about it. I do it that way because that's the way I learned. You can do it any way which suits you. Yeah. There isn't a wrong way, and there is a right way in the sense of intention of... Uh, I think it's all intention practice. It is my intention to be as open, as spacious, as forgiving, as compassionate as I possibly can, and whatever towards myself and everyone else. Whatever serves me is functional. Uh, I think that's I think that's the whole answer. There's a slight kind. There's a I want to give a little bit of time. That's that's the whole answer. And here's an asterisk footnote. Okay, here's the footnote. The footnote is as I mentioned a little bit earlier. It's also an opportunity to practice letting go, so that sometimes you might get involved in a certain phrase, which really we are connected to in some uh, really um, special way. And we get involved with it, we're doing it for a while, for a while, and then it becomes especially meaningful to us. It's also a practice to let that go. And just, it'll come back. Just to practice letting go at the same time that we're practicing openness of heart. It's just a, a caveat, you know. If, if, if we were, each of us, if we had a lot of time together, if we had days together and we were seeing each other individually, everybody would have a different practice. And at different times I might say to you, just stay with that one resolve for a long time. And then at another time I'd say, why don't you see if you can let go of that resolve and do another one? Because it's to work with the intention and to work also with letting go. Work with that amount of ease so that we don't, Fundamentally, though, you can't do it wrong. Anybody have a lunch instruction question before we eat lunch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just peering to see if I recognized you. Thank you, Lynn. Um, 
Actually, we're really supposed to eat metaphorly more than mindfully in the sense of when we do Vipassana, we really chew and pay attention to the flavor and the looking and the smelling. I would like you to... This would be, I think, the best instruction for continuing the metta practice through the lunch. Don't stop it between now and the eating. If you were singing a song... You wouldn't necessarily stop singing when you stood up and then start singing again when you started eating the sandwich. The song continues in the mind. It continues as you stand up, as you walk out. It's a terrific delight for me. I love to have a day to just do metta. And if I'm in silence and I'm really not talking to people, I can be doing the metta as I wash my hands, get my lunch, go to wherever (coughs) I'm eating it, open the lunch, eat it. So here you are singing your tune in your mind, saying your phrases in your mind, and incidentally, standing up, walking, putting on the shoes, finding the lunch, going and eating it. So that's really the instruction. Just keep the phrases going. And everything else is incidental. Now as you walk out and you're suddenly in the sun and it smells beautiful outside and the air is fresh and it's bright, moment of delight comes through you. I mean, we are open with our whole body to feel and to know and to experience what's happening. But take the delight and use it to inspire the next phrase. You know, what, I, what I'm really hoping I'm saying is that each time that there's at least a moment of uh, real pleasure through our own mind-body organism, we think, wow, that's what I wish that all beings would have, this feeling. You know, before we were saying try to bring up the nuance of feeling that connects with the phrase, and sometimes we have to look for it. How does ease of well-being feel like? You're sitting on a beautiful day with the exactly right temperature in the sun or in the shade, as is your preference, eating a lovely lunch. That's ease of well-being. That You don't have to look for how does it feel. It's right there for you. So out of this space to, to make the wishes really a setup to do this kind of practice, you know, and to do it here in this lovely place. So we continue with the metta for ourselves and for our benefactor through, through the eating. And for your close friends. How is that going with the close friends? Is that working for you? Do you notice that as you're doing it, you really love those close friends a lot? happy that you have them. In these moments of doing, you don't remember those little irritating habits that everybody has, including the close friends and loved ones. They don't come to mind. The essence of that person that you love comes to mind. I just point that out to you because it's a really important kind of an awareness. The mind does peculiar tricks and it's able to take out a small piece of a person and blow it up into a big thing under other kinds of circumstances. Or it's able, when the heart's in the right space, to really recognize and embrace the whole of the person, including their wobbly edges. Everybody has wobbly edges. So that's the practice through the lunch. Oh, wait, we'll even add one more here. We only have this one day together. We'll even add the next category of folks, which is really the hugest category of all, and in a certain way, the simplest. That's all folks that you don't know. 
they, they, in the text they're called neutral people. The truth is there are no neutral people. Immediately that we see a person, we usually have an opinion on them. <laughs> they look good, they don't look good, they sit right, they don't sit right. It's amazing, you know, we make a whole opinion of a person on how they carry their body or how big of a lunch they bring or <laughs> how fast they chew it or how contemplatively they eat it. Oh, that's a really a spiritual person. Oh, you can see that person isn't spiritual at all. The mind is just ready to make a judgment on everybody out of nothing. It just spins a whole story. So very few neutral people. But... Let's use the category of folks that you don't know well and call them neutral people, which is probably most of the people here. So that as you sit and eat your lunch or walk to the lunch and somebody comes into your line of vision, pretend that you really are radiating out those good thoughts. Like if they had uh, extrasensory hearing, like radio, if they had radio antennas, your radio is broadcasting meta. See, that's all there is. This whole room is full of radio waves, isn't it? If we had a portable radio and we turned it on, magic, it would play all those stations because all those stations are in the air here. We just don't have antennae in us to hear them. Let's pretend everyone has an antenna. I actually think everybody does, but let's just pretend, in case you don't think so, that everyone has an antenna. And you are now a broadcasting radio. You are broadcasting meta. And when people come into your line of vision, you don't know them, but you could broadcast some metta. May you be free of danger, have mental happiness, have physical happiness, have ease of well-being. Then you continue on. You might do yourself and your benefactor and your good friend, and there's somebody else, and may you be free of danger. Mental happiness, have physical happiness, ease of well-being. Everybody will know that you are broadcasting method to them so that when they see you, they'll know that that's what's playing on your radio and you will know that that's what's playing on theirs. And actually, it makes quite a particular kind of space amongst us. You know, usually in Vipassana practice, we all keep the eyes averted. So I'm giving you a special instruction today. I learned this instruction from uh, another metta guru I met recently. There's a very good instruction. This particular person says he teaches metta with eyes open, with people looking at each other. Not talking, just looking. Everybody knows what everybody else is broadcasting. It's a particular kind of interchange. So, so you don't have to seek out people, but if they come in your... <laughs> he can if you want to, but if they come into your line of vision, it's just that your radio is playing. Radios don't know who's listening. They just play all over the place, right? <laughs> That's the same as being a meta-broadcaster. You are a meta-broadcaster. So, I'll ring the bell as the start of lunch. Don't leap up. Sit there, start the broadcast, and then get up and keep it going the whole of lunch. How about it's um, 1.40? Suppose 2.15, could it? 1.20, 2.15, is that going to be enough time to eat your lunch, have a walk, keep the broadcast going, and come back at 2.15? So I'm going to ring the bell so you can 
be sure that your program is broadcasting before you leap up and start. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 31, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.